0: This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com.
1: We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode two, and we are discussing Romans 13. I'm Terry Baldwin, here with Gregory Baus, and we'll be talking about, in a summary overview, an article by Gregory that explains the historical confessionally reformed view of Romans 13. We'll also discuss two important closely related issues not explicitly written in the article. Those are both touching on the old covenant theocracy and also the idea of establishmentarianism. Now we'll link all of this in our show notes, of course, but if you want to read the article, you can visit tinyurl.com/slash r13 civ. Gov, G-O-V, and that'll send you directly to that article. You can also listen to an audio version of that article at tinyurl.com slash r13 stateless. Now, Gregory, you begin the article, which is less than a 15-minute read, with four important caveats. You focus primarily on the main issue of what Romans 13 means and implications for reformed libertarianism, but those caveats are very briefly, one, we are not talking about the libertarian party or any political party, but what scripture is teaching about civil governance and a compatible political philosophy. Secondly, basically going through and defining what the libertarian principle of non-aggression is and offering a biblical view of that. You'll also find in that article a distinction that we make between vice or sin versus crime, criminal activity. And then finally, we discuss or you discuss the libertarian principle of self-ownership and the distinction between our vertical stewardship in relation to God and the horizontal ownership that we have in relation to other people. So Gregory, why don't you elaborate a little bit on some of the things you wanted to talk about with the non-aggression principle.
0: Well, concerning that, the lex talionis that is mentioned, which is the law of proportionate retributive justice, that's key to understanding the non-aggression principle. And I don't elaborate on that in the article. So let me say a little bit more about that. In Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6, it says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So this is the first explicit statement or recorded institution of lex talionis or proportionate retribution, but moral and justicial and other norms are God given at creation. So, given the fall, civil governance in terms of administration of civil justice by responsive coercion then becomes necessary. So, in other words, it's not just due to the explicit statement, mm-hmm. although that's where it's explicitly instituted. It's a necessity on account of the fall because of the norms of morality and justice to fulfill those norms because of sin. Civil governance then becomes necessary. And Genesis 9 is not only God's authorization of of what we might call capital punishment, but as we see elsewhere in scripture, for example, with Abraham's rescue of Lot, when Lot was kidnapped and enslaved in Genesis 14, and laws concerning theft and murder having to do with property and bodily aggressions, as well as in Romans 13, this principle of proportionate retributive justice applies in all cases of crime. Namely, in cases of acts that initiate coercion against another's person or property, which is what we would call civil bad or evil or wrongdoing. Right. In Romans 13, we need to make the proper and necessary deductive inference that the wrongdoing to be punished is exclusively civil bad. That is crime, aggression against person and property, because... What is authorized or prescribed is the use of the sword, that is coercion. And therefore, proportionality applies not only in the degree or extent of coercion, but in whether coercion is authorized at all. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging proportionality as a requirement for justice entails that it is a violation of the God-given norm of proportionality to use coercion against what is not itself prior initiation of coercion. In other words, the bad conduct or wrongdoing referred to in Romans 13 is inherently qualified by the specific character of the punishment prescribed. In other words, it's coercive punishment. And so that provides the qualification. Coercion can therefore not be used against non-coercive wrongdoing. Right. Now, this may take some time to sink in, but it follows with definitive necessity. Right. Right. You think about it and you'll see it's almost a tautology <laughs> as soon as you accept the principle of proportionality.
1: Right. So one crucial distinction that might be helpful for our listeners is the difference that we make, a uh, distinction that we make between civil governance and the state, right? So civil governance is the administration of civil justice. In other words, the adjudication of civil disputes with the rules and enforcement that accompany that. This is involving persons or property. So according to the God-given norms of civil justice, we make that distinction between the action of civil governance, the administration of civil justice, and then the state, right? The state is a territorial monopoly on coercion, including the claim to supreme decision-making or final say. So while we would say the legitimate civil governance is given sword power by God, that is the lawful use of violence, the state has monopolized for itself, the sword power. And in doing so, it exists only by exerting control over persons and property belonging to others. So it's inherently unjust. And such monopoly is, in principle, totalitarian. So this really calls into question the idea of a perpetually limited state. So Gregory, can you give us an overview of how you go on to address Romans 13, 1 through 7 itself?
0: So in the article, after those preliminaries... I explain that the view I'm presenting of Romans 13 is the historical confessional reformed view, and I link to an annotated bibliography where that's documented. This may be called the political resistance view. Another description would be the prescriptive de jure, or de jura, office view. Second, I address the passage itself and contrast its meaning with an erroneous, what might be called, providential de facto person view. And I'll elaborate a little bit, we'll highlight that a little bit in a few moments. Then third, I explained the passage's context of its preceding chapters. And then lastly, mentioned some other scriptural support that helps us understand this exegesis.
1: Okay, and as far as addressing the passage, this is a question of what is taught in scripture itself. It's not an issue of political theory, is that right?
0: Yeah, that's an extremely crucial point. Of course, we do address political theory. We've already made some mentioned some points related to that. But when we're talking about the meaning of Romans 13, we're not bringing any particular understanding of politics into it. We're just dealing with what God's word is telling us, whether explicitly or implicitly by a good and necessary consequence deduced from explicit teaching. We're not saying interpretation isn't necessary. Rather, we think it's inevitable and requires paying attention to doctrinal standards affirmed by the church employing various hermeneutical interpretive principles or methods and so on.
1: Right. And what the Bible teaches is a distinct question from what sort of political theories are then permissible. And we emphasize the importance of this distinction. We don't think the Bible gives any kind of theory, and we're not trying to derive political theory from it, as many Christians have attempted to do so. Rather, seeing the meaning of Scripture, we seek to understand what God reveals about His creation in created reality— through a perspective of scriptural teaching. So we definitely encourage listeners to read this article and think through it. If there is one thing, Gregory, you would highlight about what the article tries to communicate, what would that be?
0: Mostly, it would be that what is perhaps among many today the default view, we'll say, of the passage. One that, without meaning to insult anyone, I have to say is fairly superficial and not at all reading or listening closely or carefully, but the fault view that takes the meaning of powers ordained by God to be whoever is in fact wielding power. I want them to notice that such a view is inconsistent with the passage and other scripture and was rejected by Reformed churches in their confessions, besides also being contrary to, let's say, sanctified common sense.
1: So I think listeners might be interested to hear some of your conversations with others on this topic. We'll link those in the show notes, but you've been on PresbyCast and Gospel on Tap and the Daniel 3 podcast as well. So we'll make sure that those are linked in the show notes. I'd say then your main point, a point affirmed by the Reformed Confessions, is that Romans 13 teaches that the power that God ordains is specifically defined. And that apart from what God is specifically authorizing or prescribing, there is no ordination and so no obligation to consciously submit to it. Is that right?
0: That's exactly the point. So often, when people take the erroneous default view of whoever is wielding power is to whom we must submit, they include the exception of, but not if they require sin, right? Mm -hmm. Or must obey God rather than men. The view affirmed. In the Reformed Confessions, however, recognizes that we're not required to submit to unjust rulers or laws either Mm. because they are not ordained by God. So Westminster Confession, Chapter 20, Section 4, puts it this way, those who, quote, oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, resist the ordinance of God, unquote. And the Belgic Confession, Article 36, specifies obedience only to, quote, things that are not in conflict with God's word, unquote. And it goes on to denounce all, even civil powers who would, quote, subvert justice.
1: So just to be clear, this idea of lawful power or justice, what we're saying is, is that is specifically defined. It's not whatever the people in power just want to claim is under their jurisdiction. It's specifically defined by God and limited to what we're saying is violations of the non-aggression principle. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Okay. It's not left up in the passage for rulers to decide.
1: Right. So now this idea may seem shocking for some of our listeners who've never heard this before or considered this view, especially for those who are Reformed and simply are unaware of this historical confessional Reformed view. It's common, I'd say, to experience a bit of cognitive dissonance, especially having grown up in a country that has appeared to be concerned with justice and some degree of respect, or at least lip service for Christian liberty and even economic freedom. Some may be tempted to believe that the government is only now becoming unjust. And I think it's more accurate to say there's a veil, so to speak, being removed. And we're seeing the unlawful nature of the monopoly state for what it has always been. But it will take some time, I think, for some listeners to let this sink in and really think through that. And this is part of our motivation for doing this podcast is to help our listeners grapple with these things in a theologically consistent way.
0: And it's maybe helpful to understand that none of the early Reformed churchmen who taught this view of the passage were libertarians, so affirming it doesn't depend on one's politics. hmm In any case, if some people are now encountering this biblical teaching in the context of our also explaining our political views, other objections might arise in their minds about how reformed libertarianism is compatible with scripture in other ways. One objection or question goes something like this God's having instituted civil governance or the administration of civil justice by responsive coercion can't be, they say, can't be limited by proportionality and thus by the non aggression principle. Because under the Mosaic Old Covenant, God authorized the use of coercion against non-aggressive violations of his moral law, including penalties for blasphemy, Sabbath-breaking, adultery, and so on. So how do we understand that situation as not violating the non-aggression principle? And why isn't this a reason for civil governance to use coercion against non-aggressive immorality in the New Covenant era?
1: So the short answer is Hebrews 8, 13, which I'll read. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old Mosaic covenant is not the current covenant in effect. It is now fulfilled in Christ, terminated, and therefore obsolete. The political arrangement of the old covenant was a temporary, unique typological institution. It legally typified or pointed to the consummate new heavens and earth. So the new covenant church is the inauguration of this new creation. It is administered by the keys or church discipline, not by the sword or coercion. So the new Testament applies the old covenants of a law to non-coercive spiritual discipline of the church. For example, 1 Corinthians 5 speaks to this and says, this is explicitly not to be applied outside the church. So the fact that the Mosaic covenant was God's unique and non-delegated prerogative to establish the old covenant, typological theocracy, means it was not a violation of the non-aggression principle. The promised land belongs to God. In other words, he owns it. And so, for instance, the property of Israelites at the time could never be sold, but only temporarily leased until Jubilee. As the owner, God uniquely established that polity. It wasn't a violation of the non-aggression principle. And further, it was only a temporary arrangement. And the civil enforcement of certain moral laws or the particular property laws is simply not a model for any civil governance outside of that now obsolete, mosaic, old covenant theocracy.
0: Yeah, right, exactly.
1: So another objection or question that we run into is something like this. As Christianity spread and grew, and by the 4th century, which was around the 300s AD, various empires sought to coercively enforce the Christian religion. So many of the Reformed confessions affirmed the civil establishment of religion. This involved coercion, which was used by civil powers to suppress non-Christian views and practice. So why did some of the Reformed come to reject this view and then confessionally affirm a non- or disestablishmentarianism?
0: Well, the short answer is that, for example, some English dissenters in the 1600s, the American Presbyterians in the mid to late 1700s, as well as Neo-Calvinists in the late 1800s, did not see establishmentarianism to be taught in Scripture.
1: Yeah, so in 1863, Charles Hodge summarized how we understand this in three points. And we're going to link to his full essay in the show notes, but I'll give a brief summation here. So first he says, the proper task or duties of the church and civil governance must be determined from the word of God. And when reasoning from the word of God on these points, we are not authorized to argue from the Old Testament or Old Mosaic Covenant because that was temporary and has been abolished. Instead, we must derive our conclusions from the New Testament. So there we find that Christ did institute a church separate from civil governance, giving it separate laws and officers, that Christ laid down the qualifications of church officers and enjoined on the church, not on civil governance, to judge which men in the church meet those qualifications. And that Christ prescribed the terms of admission to and the grounds of exclusion from the church and left with the church its officers to administer these rules. Now, second, Hodge says that the New Testament, when speaking of the immediate design of civil governance and the official duties of the magistrate, never suggests that magistrates have those functions related to religious belief or practice that establishmentarianism proposes. This silence, together with the fact that those functions are assigned to the church and church officers, is proof that it is not the will of God that they should be assumed by civil governance. Third, Hodge says, "The only means which civil governance can employ, namely coercion, to accomplish many duties proposed by establishmentarians such as suppressing heresy and preventing false worship. That coercion is inconsistent with the example and commands of Christ concerning faith and worship. And it's inconsistent with the liberty of Christians guaranteed in the word of God. In other words, to serve God according to the dictates of one's conscience. Coercive means are also ineffectual to the true end of religion, which is voluntary obedience to the truth and are productive of incalculable evil. So by enjoying duties concerning faith and worship upon the church as an institution distinct from civil governance, the New Testament teaches positively that they do not belong to the magistrate but to the Church.
0: And if it's not too much of a simplification to say the history of establishmentarianism begins not so much with Constantine's decriminalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire, but perhaps with the Armenian Empire and Roman Emperor Theodosius's outlawing and persecution of non-Christian religious practice. Later, the Roman papacy and other ecclesial groups Would claim so called temporal power and the right to use coercion against heretics. And while the Reformed and other Protestants rejected that idea, many continued to assert it was the duty of civil power, wherever churches had peacefully arisen, to then enforce Christianity coercively as a matter of civil policy. Historically, we believe this was simply a pagan view of religion and civil governance that corrupted church teaching. Exegetically, Reformed libertarians agree with earlier reformed disestablishmentarians and hold to corrected versions of the reformed confessions on that point.
1: I hope everybody found this episode useful. We do encourage you to go read or listen to Gregory's full article because he really lays it out concisely. And many people have found that helpful. If you do have questions or comments, concerns, even some pushback, we'd love to hear from you. You can actually send us a message on our website, reformedlibertarians.com.
0: Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Bowes.
1: See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple podcast or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.